0: Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, is reported in history of having said to a servant, he commissioned this particular servant to stand in front of him every day and say to him, Philip, you will die. Ask the servant to do that for him every day. The reasoning behind it was was that Philip of Macedon wanted to be reminded of his mortality and therefore wanted to make sure that every day he lived counted this subject that we are entering into over the next few weeks of Easter what happens when we die that's the question we want to ask or want to answer this morning this is the most important question you will ever answer absolutely without doubt the most important question you will ever answer what happens when i die philip of macedon was aware of his death it wasn't From a morbid perspective, it wasn't out of a desire to just uh, get introspective, but it was to remind him that he had a finite existence. However, and this is what we're going to explore over the next few weeks, the great question when we look at this, what happens when we die, the question that follows up is, well, is that it? Do I just cease to be? That is one philosophy. In fact, philosophers have said... And you would be surprised about this. So it was very interesting to read this just recently. A Christian author was saying that a particular philosopher, Luke Ferrier, Frenchman, had stated that the main object of philosophy, if you study the great philosophers throughout history, right up to the present era, the great quest of philosophy is actually to deal with the subject of death. What is, or how can we overcome the fear of death? And the Christian author who was... Uh, quoting this, said he went back and did a bit of a check. And indeed, as you follow the history of philosophy, over and over again, what they are concerned about is how do we overcome death? How do we overcome the fear of death? Interesting, isn't it? You would have thought that it would have grappled a little bit more with the subject of the meaning of life. And of course, that's related to death. But the, the object or the goal of the vast majority of philosophers is to deal with this subject of death. What happens when I die? How can I overcome my fear of death? And it is a question that we all ask at some point or other. And if you haven't asked the question until today, well, now you're confronted with it. It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to consider. It's a good question to seek answers on. Because as I said, it is the most important question that you will ever answer. Our society, have you noticed, is obsessed with a quest for immortality, isn't it? You only have to look at our culture, the emphasis that we place on a person's looks, the emphasis that we place on sculpting our bodies, and the never-ending quest to be younger and younger. If you don't believe me, just ask Dolly Parton. This drive that we have to beat ageing, this drive that we have to defeat and cure all disease. Now, they're admirable goals, okay? Don't think for a minute that I'm knocking that. But I read this statistic. This is really interesting. If right at this moment in history, doctors and scientists were able to cure every single cancer, imagine that, that from this moment on in the world, all cancer was cured by science. Do you know how many years it would add to your life? Are you ready? 2.2 years. The point being is that you're going to die of something anyway. And even if all cancer was eradicated, that's all your life will be extended by. Fascinating, isn't it? 2.2 years. Another interesting thought. Futurologist Ian Pearson has said this. As I understand it, he's not a Christian, but he estimates... That by 2050, now think about that, that's not that far off. By 2050, he estimates that we will be able to download our consciousness into another body. Think about that. That's what he's proposing. What is it? It is a quest for immortality. And so whatever position you take in terms of what happens when you die, there is a drive within every person on the planet, I believe, to want to live forever. And we have to ask ourselves the question, where does that come from? But there is a drive to live forever. One philosopher said this, again, speaking from an agnostic and atheistic position, he said that the quest for immortality ultimately is a quest for salvation without God. That's an honest admission, isn't it? What we want as human beings is immortality. We want salvation on our own terms and we will do it. And so that's why futurologists like Ian Pearson talk about the fact that they think in 2050 you'll be able to download your consciousness into another body. What happens when we die? Are the philosophers right? Are the scientists right? Are the scientists correct when they say that ultimately at some point we'll be able to eradicate all disease and we'll be able to give you a body and we'll be able to keep transferring your body so that you can effectively live forever? Are the scientists right? Or is there another answer? And when it comes to this question of what happens when I die, are the atheists right? Are the atheists right that when they say, well, there was a time when you didn't exist, but now you do exist... But when you die, well, you just won't exist. What's the problem? That's one of the answers. Well, that's the predominant answer that atheists give. Are the atheists right? Or is there another answer? Is there any hope? And if there is any hope, if there is any hope that immortality is possible, if there is any hope of life beyond death, can I be sure about it? I hope you stay with us through this series, whether it's online or in-house here on a Sunday. I hope you stay with us because this is an important series and we are going to be answering some of the big questions of life. Well, let's look at this from a Christian perspective this morning. I want to start with the Christian perspective. I am a Christian, as you know. Most of you here listening online are Christians. But some of you are on your journey to faith and some of you might actually have some real doubts about this whole question of life after death. What happens when I die? So I want to talk from the perspective of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles or reading devices, please open that passage there. And I want to talk for a few minutes about death and the Christian. Now, I want you to notice the context because Paul is talking here to Christians. He is writing to a Christian church and he has got onto the topic of the body. If you look in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our body is decaying, it's death doomed, if you like, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The body is in his mind. So when we come to chapter 5, Paul is thinking about life and death. He's thinking about the body. And what can we piece together from what Paul says in this passage of Scripture? Well, there are four things that stand out to me. Four things that Paul effectively says as he unpacks this. Now, you need to understand this before we get into that, that this week we're dealing with death and the Christian. What happens when I die for the Christian? Next Sunday, the the first part of the two-part question, what is heaven like? We will be looking a little more specifically at what heaven is like, but also we will be looking at hell. Yes, we're going to talk about that subject. Because, folks, it's an important subject. You cannot talk about heaven and not talk about hell. And so next Sunday, we will talk about that. And I think you will find that Scripture has some powerful, important things to say to us about hell as well. That's next Sunday. But for this week, we focus on death and the Christian. Here's the first thing that Paul says. Death is not the end. Look at verse 1. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. He is talking about the body. Paul was a tent maker. What a great image for him to use. He talks about our body being a temporary dwelling. You don't live in tents forever. Generally, we don't. But it's a temporary dwelling. And Paul is saying that our body, this temporary dwelling, if it's torn down, he's referring to death. Here's what we know, says Paul. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Paul is not saying, Paul is not speaking about the heavenly home that Christ has gone to prepare for you. He's not talking about the mansion in the sky that we read about in John chapter 14. That's not what Paul means by the house here. Paul is talking about the future resurrected body of the Christian. That is what Paul is looking forward to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and his confrontation with the risen Christ changed Paul forever. And from that moment on, he began to understand what the resurrection meant and the implications of it for us and for our salvation. And part of that implication, one of those consequences of the resurrection, is that we who are in Christ will receive resurrected bodies like Jesus. So in chapter chapter 5, verse 1, Paul is talking here about that if this earthly body is destroyed by death, we know that God will give us a resurrected body. He's looking forward to that moment in history. Death, says Paul, is not the end. We have a building from God that is eternal in the heavens. Now, here's what I want to draw out by way of conclusion. If that's true, if indeed that we will receive a resurrected body, then logically it tells you there is life beyond the grave, doesn't it? It tells you that after death... There is a conscious awareness we live on beyond the grave. There is an afterlife. That is clearly what Paul is saying, and he's saying the ultimate goal is that we will be housed in the resurrected bodies that Jesus promised us. It all hinges on the resurrection. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.20. Now, we're not going to be able to look up every verse, but I will quote them for you. You might like to jot them down. At the end of the service today, there will be a slide-up where you can send some questions in via email or through text. And over the course of the series, we'll endeavour to answer your questions. So be watching for that. But jot down this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. This guarantee for the Christian that we will receive a resurrected body, Paul spelled out to the Corinthians in his first letter. In chapter 15, verse 20, he said this, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first Of a great harvest of all who have died. Folks, that's you and me. We haven't died yet, but many Christians have. We are yet to die. We may well be here when Christ returns for his church. But either way, whether we're alive or we die, at that point we will receive resurrected bodies, and it's guaranteed we are part of the great harvest, and it's guaranteed because Christ was raised from the dead physically. It all hinges on Jesus. First point, death is not the end. Second point, God, I've referred to this, but I want to emphasize it, God will give us new bodies. Have a look at verse 2. In this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I want to skip verse 3 because I want to come back to that in a moment, just to bring the contrast. Down to verse 4, again talking about the body, he says, while we are in this tent, our body, we groan being burdened. This idea of groaning and longing, it refers to a deep desire. So Paul is saying that while we're in this body, we have this deep desire to put on the new body. It's built in us. We recognize the deficiencies of this body now because of sin. We recognize that death is part and parcel of this world we live in at this time. And so within the Christian, there is a longing that looks forward to that future point when we will receive resurrected bodies. Paul says, indeed, if you look in verse 4, we're burdened by this. Now, the burden is not necessarily this physical body that we carry around. The burden is that we long for, we look for that day when we will be made perfect as Jesus is perfect. We will receive that resurrected body. But notice what he says, the contrast He says, that's what we long for. But if you look at verse 3, here's the contrast. He says, when we've put on this body, I'm paraphrasing, he said, we shall not be found naked. What is he talking about? He's talking about this. He's saying that we don't want to be immaterial spirits just floating around in the ether. We don't want to be found naked without bodies. Our goal is we're looking forward to resurrection. We're looking forward to that new body that Christ will give us. That's important. Paul is saying the goal of the Christian is not to be floating around on a cloud in some ghostly apparition, uh, form of a ghostly apparition. Our goal is resurrection. Our goal is to receive the new body that has been promised to us in Christ. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I mentioned it a moment ago, and, and you see it on TV programs in our culture. How many... TV programs revolve or around the issue of living forever. I've not watched the series. I'm not planning to watch it, but I understand there's a series on Netflix called Altered Carbon, and it's talking about three or 400 years in the future when consciousness is downloaded into a body, and when that body wears out, then you just download your consciousness into another body. It's a kind of a pseudo-immortality. That's not what God is promising here. He's not saying that when you die, he will just swap this current body that you've got for a different body. No, the body that you have now will be clothed with the resurrection body. Now, that's interesting. That's the terminology that he uses. So, in this sense, we put on this new body. As he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the interesting part, Paul likens it to this. He said that the old body, when it dies, is sown in the ground. It's like a a kernel of wheat. But then what God will do with that wheat, as you know, you sow a kernel of wheat, it produces wheat from that simple seed that was sown. In a sense, the wheat that is born out of it has has clothed itself over the seed. He said the resurrection is like that. You plant the old body and the new body grows out of that. You put it on, you clothe it. You don't just simply swap bodies. I think that says something about the fact that whether or not we'll recognize ourselves in heaven. Very interesting. Very interesting. Jesus' resurrected body was still Jesus, but it was a resurrected body. But the contrast that Paul wants us to understand is we don't want to be naked. We don't want to have an immaterial existence. We want a resurrected body. Here's the third thing that he says. God can be trusted with this. Death is not the end. God will give us new bodies. And Paul wants to underline the fact that God can be trusted in this. Have a look at verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Or as it was read in our reading, the Spirit was given as a promise. The idea here is of a down payment. You know that if you go to buy a home or a car, you normally put a deposit. Deposit is a good translation. You put the deposit down. And what does the deposit signify? That you're good for the money, that you will come and pay the rest later. And this is what Paul is saying. The guarantee that we have, this is fantastic. The guarantee that we have Of this resurrected body, this existence beyond the grave, the guarantee is God's Holy Spirit. He gave you the Holy Spirit now. You have the resurrected life of Jesus inside you now. That is God's pledge. That is God's promise. It is his down payment that he will deliver on the rest. Amen? It's great, isn't it? The Holy Spirit indwelling you now is God's down payment, God's promise, because you've responded in faith to the gospel and he's guaranteed... That he will deliver on the rest of the promises. The Holy Spirit indwelling you. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul picks up on this. He talks about the fact that when you believed in the gospel, God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. That's another great word. Do you know what the sealing means? In the ancient world... A person who might want to buy a large load of timber would go and pick out the timber and he would have his signet ring and he would take the signet ring and he would implant it into the wax, presumably on the timber that he bought, and there would be his seal or his sign that that timber belonged to him. Then later on he would send a servant to come and pick up the load and the servant would come with the ring to make sure that the ring identified this as belonging to his master and the timber would be taken away. God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. It is his uh, identification mark on you, if you like, that he has sealed you for all eternity. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 1 verse 13 and into verse 14 and says he's given you the Holy Spirit as a pledge. There's that word again, a deposit, a down payment. The wonderful thing about the Spirit in us now is that you're signed, sealed and delivered and on your way to heaven. Isn't that great? That is the guarantee that God gives you by his Holy Spirit. God can be trusted because he has given us the spirit as a pledge. So what does this produce in Paul? He says therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home uh, sorry uh, knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight. We are of good courage I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking again about this concept of life and death. We have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that God will fulfill his promises to us. But what's he talking about here? Well, he says we're of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. The language he uses is the language of a person. Uh, obviously, it's translated out as we are at home, but the, the, there's two very distinct uh, Ideas coming through here. He's talking on the one sense of a person who is at home and a person who has gone abroad or overseas or away from their home. Two very distinct concepts. And so he uses this to describe life and death. And so he says, if we remain here now, if we're in our bodies now, in this life, then we have not gone abroad. We haven't gone away to our heavenly home. Conversely, he says... If we do depart, if we leave this body and go away, we are at home with the Lord. Now, this has caused people to speculate because the resurrection of believers is in the future. We don't know when that's going to happen. What is Paul saying? What happens when we die now? We're looking for the resurrection. It's clear that Paul is talking about resurrected bodies, but what happens now when I die as a Christian? What Paul is inferring here is that if we die now, we know we will be present with Christ. Let me read it to you from Philippians chapter 1, where he explains it a little more clearly. In Philippians 1 verse 21, he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, and what? Be with Christ, for that is very much better. What Paul is saying, what he clarifies in Philippians, is when we die, we will be present with Jesus. Now, that's caused all sorts of speculation amongst theologians and authors. And those who have studied scripture, do we get some sort of temporary physical body or is it an immaterial state? The evidence suggests that it's what people call the intermediate state, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But at this point, as we await resurrection, if we die, we are in heaven with Christ, without a body. That seems to be the way in which the scripture is headed on this subject. What we do know is this, we will be with Christ. It will be a conscious existence. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. And we'll be safe and secure in his presence. But it's a temporary state because our long-term goal is the resurrection of the body. One final thing that Paul says. He says there will be an accounting for the Christian. Look at verse 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christians will be judged, but here's the good news. This is not a judgment of condemnation. The word that is used here for the judgment seat is different to the uh, the judgment you read about in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. This is not that judgment. Completely different judgment. The judgment here, the, the Greek word is bema, the bema seat of Christ. What was the bema seat? In the ancient world, the bema seat was an elevated platform with steps coming up to it. And in amongst the Athenians in their Grecian games, the bema seat was the place where the judge gave out the rewards to the athletes, those who had competed. So when we read the scripture here, and it talks about Christians appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, it is not a judgment for sin but it is a reward seat. And Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You might want to jot that down. He describes this process. The object of this judgment is to test the character or the motivation of our Christian service. Did we do it for Jesus or did we do it for ourselves? And so Paul describes it by saying that some of what we've done will be gold and silver and precious jewels, but some of it will be hay, wood and stubble. And all of it will be thrown into the fire of God's judgment. And what has burned up That's regarded as worthless. But what's left behind are the things that were done for the glory of Jesus and in his name. And on that basis, we receive our reward. Paul wants Christians to know why it's important. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, but while you're here in this life, do all you can for Jesus. Live for him. Live with integrity. Live to bring glory to his name. Because one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to have your work tested. So let's put it all together. Let's draw it together this morning as we move forward on this question, what happens when I die? The first thing I want to say to you is there is an afterlife. We consciously exist beyond the grave. That is the testimony of the scripture. Paul says this, notice the confidence. When speaking about the resurrected body, He says, We know in verse 1. The implication, the Greek tense says, We know now and we continue to know. That's confidence. When Paul talks about whether we leave this life and go to be with the Lord, again in verse 6, he says, Knowing that while we're at home in the Lord, we're absent from the Lord. Verse 8, But we're of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the Lord and be at home. That good courage means we are confident. The word knowing, again, refers to knowing now and an ongoing state. You continue to know. So Paul is talking about confidence. This is the confidence we have, that when we die, this life is not the end. We will be with Jesus. I have experienced great comfort over the last several weeks as I've been reading through on this subject. The words of Jesus have spoken to me in a fresh way. Do you remember his words to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, verse 43? The thief cries out and says to to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not next week, not down in the future, but today. What's he saying? There is a conscious afterlife. You and I will be together in paradise. We will be together. There is a conscious existence beyond the grave. What does that tell me? That you and I are more than just bodies. We are real creatures with a soul, with the capacity to love God and to love others the capacity of consciousness. Do you know that scientists can track brainwaves? Here's an interesting thing. Scientists can track brainwaves, but they cannot explain human consciousness. I did a test on this. I asked Alexa yesterday if she loved me. Try it with Alexa or Google. I said, Alexa, do you love me? You know what she said? Fickle. She said... There are people that I admire and respect, but human love is something I'm still trying to understand. Why is that? Because Alexa is not conscious. I said to Alexa, Alexa, who made you? I'm made by Amazon. So I asked her this morning, Alexa, what is the meaning of life? You can tell I'm having deep conversations at her. Alexa, what is the meaning of life? And you know what she said? The traditional an- one traditional answer is 42. Now, if you're aware of the Hitch- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you'll understand the significance of that answer, but I thought it was pretty pathetic. So I asked her one more question this morning. Alexa, what happens when we die? You know what she said? That's a big question, and I don't have an answer for it. Alexa is not conscious. They might be able to create what's called artificial intelligence... But scientists cannot explain and cannot create consciousness. What does that tell us? That we're more than just bodies, folks. That there is something that lives beyond us. The Bible calls it the soul. And that following death, we will be conscious and aware. Atheists, as I said have tried to explain this away. They, they say things like, well, you didn't exist before, you're not going to exist after, so what's the big deal? Here's the interesting thing. One atheist doctor, and he's not alone, said, I have tried to resolve intellectually my fear of death and he said, I have come to the conclusion that it cannot be done, at least not for me. He's not on his own. Because something that atheists don't want to admit is that in the atheist community, they have... An article was written about it a few years back. They have a suicide problem, and it's associated with depression and despair, and what's the point of life? Atheists don't want to talk about that. They want to give this impression that they've got it all together and it's not a big deal. In fact, on Roman tombs back in the ancient world, it was common to see this inscription and it typifies the atheistic philosophy. On Roman tombs, and indeed in the hearts of many atheists today, they say things like, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. But it's not true, they do care. Thomas Nagel said this. He said the loss, he's an atheistic philosopher, but he's at least honest. He said the loss of life is objectionable. If life, this life, is all we have, then losing it would be the greatest loss we can sustain. At least he's honest. The Bible points to a different reality. The Bible tells us that there is an afterlife. The Bible talks about the intermediate state as well. We've touched on this. What am I saying? The intermediate state is simply that period now, when we, should we die between now and when Christ comes for his church and we receive resurrected bodies, we will be in heaven with Christ. As I understand it from scripture, it's not a physical existence, but I think we are recognisable, we are conscious, we're in the face, see the face of God, we will be in relationship and fellowship with other people, but it's a temporary state. It is not the final dwelling place of the Christian because God will bring the new heavens and the new earth together, the first heaven and the first earth, earth will pass away. Revelation 21 talks about that. Ultimately, we will live with resurrected bodies forever on earth with God. Isn't that a great future? Eternal life, real immortality. Life as God intended it. But for now, we're with, as Jesus described it, with him in paradise. Now, this is revealing, this intermediate state, because there are those who would say, when you die now as a Christian, you go into what is called soul sleep. In other words, you go to sleep for a period of time, and then God will wake you up at the resurrection. That is not the direction of the Scripture. Again, the words of Jesus: "Today, you will be with me in paradise. There will be a conscious reality. You will be in my presence." But there is also coming a judgment. Now, just actually before we move, we can keep the judgment there. But just before we move on to the intermediate from the intermediate state, I just want to say this: that it's kind of like I don't know about you, but I look about it and I think. What's it like? What's it like to wake up in the presence of Jesus? And it's kind of, what's it like in, in that particular uh, first heaven? And there's some uncertainty with it. I love what Lee Strobel said. He said, we can be confident that this will be a sublime and blissful experience. There will be a sense of incompleteness because our souls are separated from our bodies. But we're looking forward to that moment of resurrection as well. I take great comfort from that. I take great comfort from Paul, who said, I don't want to be naked. I want to receive my resurrected body. I find those encouraging statements. I want to talk about judgment. In the context of John 5, verse 24. Let me read that to you. You see, the judgment that you will receive as a Christian is not for your sin. That has been dealt with now. Romans 8, 1 says what? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin question has been settled once and for all. You will not stand judgment for your sin. Jesus himself said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive your reward, he's not going to be there to condemn you. He's not even going to be there to condemn you. The, the wood and the stubble that's burned up, the things that you did, and there will be much of that in my life, the things that I did that were not done in the name of Jesus, that's burned up. He will not then turn around and say, no. He'll be looking at the things that I did do for him, the things that were done genuinely to glorify him. So he's not there to chastise us. It's just to prove, to determine what's worthless and what's good. And then you receive your reward. I love what I read. Dwight Pentecost, this was such a marvellous comment that we will not stand judgment for sin. Listen to this. I just love the way it came out. A saint will never again come into judgment on account of his natural or inherited sin. Isn't that great? You're free. No condemnation. The Christian's guilt, listen to this, has been obliterated by the blood of his Redeemer. And he is freely and justly pardoned for his Saviour's sake. Because Christ is risen from the dead, he is no longer in his sins. We sang a great song about that this morning, and can it be? The dungeon flame with light, I rose, my chains fell off, you're free. You will not stand, God will not stand in judgment of you for your sin. It's dealt with here and now because of the blood of Jesus and what he did for you in rising from the dead. Folks, Whatever else you get out of this series in heaven, you know who it's all about? Heaven's all about Jesus. And we will sing his praises and we will glorify him and be with him face to face because it's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. And we can know with confidence we're going there. But it's also about the restoration of all things. Folks, we're headed to a new heaven and a new earth that will be joined together. That is the promise of Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. That God will redeem this earth, and we will live with Him forever in the new heaven and the new earth—a restored, refreshed creation. It's the restoration of all things. That is ultimately what we are looking for. As I've been writing this Advent calendar, it's a uh, Lent calendar. It's been interesting because the last week we've been trying to—I've been trying to deal with some of the common questions that come up about heaven. We'll look at that over the next two weeks. What I've noticed, not that there's been heaps of comments, but some of the comments that have been made, we've got some funny ideas as Christians. We as Christians have this negative view of the body that somehow the body imprisons the soul, and the real object of life is that the soul will be released from the body into bliss. That is not a biblical conception. The body is part and parcel of your salvation. It's important. God made you a human being with a body. We fell into sin. Sin ravages the body. It brought about death. But God's purpose in Christ is to restore it all. To refresh it. To renew it. For us to experience humanity as it was always intended to be. In loving fellowship with our creator and with each other. Isn't that a marvellous vision? And so that's why I'm looking to answer questions like, will we eat in heaven? I sure hope so. I think we will. Will we work in heaven? I think we will. That probably sounds really distressing to some of you right now. You thought you were going to get to heaven and have a big rest. I think God has got some great plans for us in heaven. The only difference is we will be working without the ravages of sin and the fall. Will we worship in heaven? Yes, I don't think it will be an eternal worship service, but we will worship in heaven. Will there be parties in heaven? I think there will be. Will there be pets in heaven? i will have to turn up in a couple of weeks for that one. That was an interesting... I got an interesting response when I wrote about it this week. But what I've saw, seen in some of the responses is this kind of ethereal idea that somehow the body is nasty. That's a Greek concept. God says the body's not nasty. God says the body is ravaged by sin and I want to redeem it and make you whole again. To be human is to have a body. So with what do I conclude? Lee Strobel in his wonderful, wonderful book, you might want to jot this down and purchase it. Lee Strobel had an interview. The book is called The Case for Heaven. He had a conversation with Louis Palau, the great Latin evangelist who was dying. In fact, about two or three months after the interview, Louis Palau went to heaven. And they started talking about it, and Louis Palau said, I would love, he said, when I get to heaven, he said, I'd love to be able to send a text back to people, just to tell them what it's like. And he said, if you could send a text back to Christians, Strobel said to him, if you could send a text back, what would you say? He said, I would tell Christians, go for it, take a risk. Don't be afraid to tell someone about the, the wonders of heaven and how they can get there through the love of Jesus. That's what I would say. And then he said if you could send a text back to non-Christians, what would you say? And this is what his answer was. Don't be stupid. Isn't that a great answer? Don't be stupid. Don't pass up the free offer of salvation and heaven that is yours in Jesus Christ because He's what he has done. And I would say to you this morning, if you're here or online and you don't know Jesus, I say with absolute respect, don't be stupid. Don't pass up the free gift of eternal life. Don't pass up all that Jesus has done for you, as we were reminded around the Lord's table today. Don't be stupid. Respond in faith and repentance to the free offer of salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ, and you will have security, and you you will be able to answer the question, what happens when I die? If you've got questions, let's have a look at this slide. You can text or email any questions from today or in the next few weeks. There's the number 0490006737 or mail at wbc.org.eu. We'll endeavour to answer your questions along the way. Hear the words of Louis Palau. Don't be stupid. Don't pass up the offer of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have reminded us this morning of all that you have done for us. It's amazing. And Father... Whilst we might have questions and we might have even have some doubts about the afterlife and what happens, who better than to tell us what happens next is you? Why can we say that? Because you were raised from the dead and you are alive today. You are the confidence upon which we stand, you are the one that we look to because you didn't just defeat sin at the cross but it was sealed forever. The destruction of sin, the destruction of death, the new hope that we can have, it was all sealed by your resurrection. And your Holy Spirit indwells us now. Those of us who know and love you indwells us as a down payment on the eternity that you have promised for us. Lord, help us to grasp it, not just with one hand, but help us to grasp it with both hands. And in spite of our doubts, in spite of our questions, renew our hope. And Lord... I pray for those of us today who have been rejecting the message of Jesus. I pray this sincerely and humbly. Don't be stupid. Embrace Jesus today. Amen.